Hi, I'm Susan. And this is Diane. And this is When Autumn Comes. Look, life sometimes just looks different than we thought it would. This is a podcast for mamas and for people who love them, whose lives were flipped upside down as a doctor looked into our eyes and explained our child's prognosis. Or for the mamas who get very little sleep as they face symptoms and behaviors that just aren't typical for other children. This is a place where we can take on this journey together because we know that this can be a sad, lonely, misunderstood path. But we also know that as colder temperatures and darker days begin to appear, so do the golden leaves and beautiful sunsets of autumn. We know that life comes in seasons. We know that in our world, 24 hours can hold so much change that it feels like four seasons in one day. We are here to let you share your story, let you laugh and let you cry, let you learn and let you grow together with other mothers when autumn comes. One of the most beautiful things that I think comes to light with this project, this When Autumn Comes project, is how we all have so much trauma and baggage and grief and all of that. And our stories are all very, very different, but we can all relate to each other in some way, shape, or form. Today, you are going to meet Jen, and, you know, I feel like, I feel like in the medical mom community, none of us, at least the circle I have, none of us try to one-up each other. We all try to support each other. No one's like, hey, I see your trauma and raise it by 10. You know, if, if it were a contest and we were all competing for, I don't know, the darkest, the darkest story, I think Jen could be like, hey, hold my beer. Today, I want you to meet Jen. She is a gem. She is a light. She is a wonderful, wonderful mom who has faced a lot in her lifetime. And I do want to add that like, her story may not be relatable to you because her story is rare and heart-wrenching. However, even if a little part of this resonates, there's beauty. For example, when we were interviewing her, we interviewed her before Lorelai died. And there's a part in here where she talks about where she talks about her ICU stay with her son Carter. Knowing what she had been through when I was in the ICU with Lorelai gave me strength. Knowing that she potentially was in that same exact room that I was in and we were in like I don't know, seven or eight of them, so there was a good chance that we were in the same room at some point in time. Um, not together, obviously, but you know what I'm saying. It gave me strength and it gave me hope that if she can do it, I can do it. Thank you, Jen, for sharing. And thank you to all the families who share on this podcast. I love you all. I'm grateful for you all. Now let's dig in. Also, P.S. This is part one of Jen's story. Come back next week. Listen this week. Don't go, don't leave yet. But she will finish her story because, again, her story is so big. She will be finishing her story next week. Okay, guys, we are here with Jen, and she is going to tell us a little bit, actually a lot of bit, about her family. Thank you for being here today, Jen, and welcome to When Autumn Comes. 
tell us what brings you here. Tell us about, um, we usually start with asking a question about the child or children that we're going to talk about. So you have several kids. I do. Um, but today, specifically, we're going to talk about Carter and Silas. Right. What What was Carter like? So Carter was born a preemie. He was two and a half weeks early, four pounds, 15 ounces, but he met all of his milestones. And he was a cautious, shy little guy. He was not very loud or very boisterous. He was just very, very, um, just kind of, like I said, cautious. Was he a um, mama's boy? Sure, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, so he was born preemie, but he met all his milestones. And at 15 months, he came down with some kind of sickness and we didn't know what was going on. And so we took him to the, the doctor and they thought he had an ear infection. So he got antibiotics and we brought him home that night and my husband was rocking him in the rocking chair and and he looked down and he saw like little blue dots on his skin. And he thought, oh, Haley got, um, Haley got into the markers and put marker on him or, you know, something like that. And I had talked to the ASCA nurse at some point and she said, she had mentioned the blue dots on the skin, and she said, if you see that, you need to go to the ER. Well, my husband and I did not communicate. And the next day, I took him into the pediatrician. Long story short, we were ambulanced over to Mary Macklin and then ambulanced over to CHKD. There's so much more involved in the story, but, you know, my story's very long, so I have to condense <laughs> it. Um, so we took him, t- so CHKD, this was August 16th, 2007. The doctor said, you know, it may get worse before it gets better. We've seen this before. Did you, did they know what it was at this point? They did not. They did not. But he was start, he was just very lethargic. I can't remember the exact details of what was going on with his body, but he was very lethargic. Oh, at the pediatrician, he was throwing up blood. Mm-hmm. Um, and it had coffee grounds in it. And that's another very serious sign. Mm-hmm. And so I was actually in the pediatrician's office and I was holding him and I was, I, I was like in a back room for like 45 minutes. And he was, I had him on my shoulder and he was throwing up onto the floor and you could see coffee grounds. Well, as soon as a medical professional saw that, then everybody swarmed into the room. I'm getting chili bumps thinking about it. I was just thinking like, you started this conversation like, oh yeah, I mean, he wasn't feeling well and had an ear infection. And all of a sudden, you know, a day later, you're in the pediatrician. Exactly. Like, and you're speaking, and I know this, I'm assuming, how long ago was this? 2007. So this is, you know, there was some time, but you're speaking as though it's just very factual. This is just what happened, but I am sure you were, I mean, what were you feeling during this point? There's so much involved to my complex story. I could take any little segment and go deep into it. Um, What was I feeling? So I talked to the ask a nurse and they had told me, you know, if you see these things, you need to go to the emergency room. Well, then I called the pediatrician and they said to come to their office. And so I was just following what the medical professionals were telling me what to do. I didn't know what was going on. I I just didn't know, but as soon as everyone started swarming, then I knew something was really wrong. Mm -hmm. So they ambulanced us to Mary Immaculate. He stayed there for a few hours, and then we ambulanced over to CHKD. And I remember that night, he was crying in the back of the ambulance. And I, I remember one of the ambulance personnel saying to me, it's a good sign that he's crying. 
And this was August 16th. So my husband and I, we kind of like tag team it because we've got other kids at home. So um, I went home to be with my other kids while he stayed the night with him and I was going to come back in the morning. And, um, you know, I was trying to, I was trying to make sure that my other kids at home were okay. They were concerned. I was trying to, you know, give them a little bit of assurance, you know, that they said that, that it might get worse before it gets better, but, um, they've seen this before. So that next morning. And you still don't know what this is. Not at this point. No. And they didn't know what this is. They did not. They were just just thinking this was a virus that, uh, they, I think so. They were just okay. supporting him with IV fluids and things like that. Okay. And I think, I think it, that, that next day, I think they actually put him into a medically induced coma. I think, like I said, I, you know, with, between the two boys, the details kind of get fuzzy. But so that day we had friends that were coming over to pray for, pray for Carter. So we had just hung out with Carter. We were, we were around his bed, but they didn't, they had a family room. So we went over to the family room and we were trying to set up, you know, childcare for our kids, trying to, uh, you know, just take care of some business details so that we could, you know, long haul stay at CHKD. And um, I just got this feeling. I thought I just wanted to go back to him. And so I did. And um, when I got there, John, John says, well, let me go. Let me go with you. So when we got in there, the... Um, Something, something was concerning and, and the medical personnel were coming over to him. So basically he started to code. And, um, I ran out of the room trying to call my friends to pray. And, um, and I was coming back and back and forth and they said, sing to him, Jen, sing to him. And so, um, my song for him was Hush Little Baby, Don't You Cry. And so I was singing that to him and he coded. And he died. And um, so my husband grabbed my my waist. They closed the PICU doors, because he was in the PICU at this point. They closed the PICU doors so I could wail. And um, so I wailed. And then after that, I gathered my composure. You know, this is the shock part of grief. I got on the phone. I started calling people. He's with Jesus. And so we had community swarm us. And um, that next year was was quite a blur. I cannot imagine how you went from, I think he has an ear infection, to he coded in the PICU. Seriously. Where do you go from there? Mentally. I mean, I know you're a mom like me and you immediately get into like, okay, make phone calls, figure this out. But like mentally, where do do. you go from there? You know, I think that shock and grief, I think is God's way of helping us do those, those details. Do you know what I'm saying? Because you can't, like I've always analyzed it to eating an elephant, right? You cannot eat an elephant like all in one sitting. And I think that like for something like death, it's huge. I could not comprehend that, could not digest all of that at once. And so in my grief, like, I, you know, there were moments where you, I would feel it fully, you know, and then the next day I might wake up and I might feel like, okay, okay I might can do this, you know, and then only to be whacked upside the head again with grief. It was like, mm-hmm. but, but what I noticed is throughout time is those time, those moments where I got whapped upside the head with grief, they got further and further apart. And, you know, of course, as moms, 
we pull it together for other kids, right? We do what we need to do because I still had three other kids at home. I have two older step stepkids and I have I had my daughter Haley who was four at the time. Can I ask you when you went in for the ear infection to when he coded and passed, how many days or hours was that? Two. Yep, two. So it was on Thursday. We went in, took him into the pediatrician. I think it was Wednesday night that my husband noticed those little blue dots. And I think Wednesday I had talked to the ask a nurse on the phone. But my husband and I did not connect those two things together. So Thursday we went into the pediatrician. Friday night was when he died. Okay, so coming back up, yeah. what happened? So he passes away and... We did not find this out until two years later. Well, no, three years later. So what did they say though? They're like, I'm sorry. The autopsy, autopsy, which took like, you know, like maybe two weeks. When they did the autopsy, it did not look like a virus and it did not look like bacterial infection. They didn't know. So we just kind of chopped... Blue dots and the vomit. That was internal have... bleeding. I'm sorry. The the blue dots and the coffee ground was all internal bleeding. The coffee ground vomit and the okay. blue dots was all internal bleeding. So there was something very seriously going on. And when when you get a inconclusive autopsy, being a woman of faith, do you just chalk it up to like, oh my okay, gosh. God, like I would have that been was... like, how the f did this seriously? Happen? Like. It, again, it's, it was such a whirlwind. And like, you know, the grief is not just when he dies or the grief is not just the next month. It's like the grief is ongoing, you know? And so did it take my faith for a loop? Absolutely. Because I was raised with certain belief systems. Okay. That rug was pulled out from underneath my feet. You know, the, I was, I was raised in, and I, and I got certain messages along the way. So my faith was in crumbles and I had to reconstruct my faith. This is what I boiled down to is this shirt, which Diane, you said you have. And if not, he is still good. That is one of these bedrock things that I can stock, stack my claim in, stock my claim in. I don't know how you say that, stick my claim in, <laughs> um, that I know that. I don't know a lot of other things. I know that he is good, and I know that he loves me. Um, and the, the journey is absolutely brutal, but he is there with me. And I love those moments when he gives me those, those little God winks where he's right there with me. Those carry me. So you didn't know. You go home. You continue on with your life. You... Right. I mean, continue in air quotes. You put right. your pieces back together because your son had an ear infection and now he's gone. We thought it might be sepsis. The doctors thought it, he might have gone sepsis. That was the only possible explanation. Okay. And then a couple years later, I have a question. I want to back up and I would love for you to, like, who was at home? Tell me about your your Who's husband, your other children. So when you leave the hospital and you go home, like, oh, this is what you're caring for, right? Like, this is what you have to do to tell them. Yes. My home was filled with beautiful people. I walked in and my whole, my whole home was filled with beautiful people and they cleaned my house. And my pastor and his wife took us to my mom's to tell her and to my older two. They were with friends. So we went and told them, and um, then I came back home to my house full of beautiful people. And I can tell you right now, that is how I survived that, is those people. 
And you know what? Those, those people are gifts. Honestly, that's how I survived. And my story gets even more complex. But that is how I survived the whole thing. All of it. Because I can get into the next boy in a minute. But, you know, so after, after Carter died, I wanted to get pregnant again. That was, that was my, that was my solution. You know, I'm going to get pregnant again. Not that he could ever replace Carter, but that was in my grief. That is what, that is what I needed. I wanted another child. We've talked to a lot of moms and some people have said it terrified them after losing a child to consider having another. It terrified my husband. Okay. Uh-huh. And it, but and it for took, you, it was, you felt like that piece was missing and that's what uh-huh. would help you. Yep. It took us a while to kind of come to the same page because he didn't want to go through that again. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. And so he didn't want, but he knew that that was my heart's desire. And so he eventually came around. So I had to put a maternity rider on my entrance plan. So I had to wait six months, which was probably good because I needed that time to grieve. So when the six months was over, you know, it, it took a bit to get pregnant. I usually gotten pregnant really quickly, but it took a bit to, quit, to get pregnant this time. And two miscarriages later, <laughs> I was pregnant with Silas in February, I believe. And he was due in November. Well, with Carter, the reason he came early is because I had a calcified placenta. And when does that happen? When does that occur? In smokers usually or older mothers, and I was neither. Hmm. So we have no idea why my placenta calcified. I think it was either, I think it was 75% calcified, maybe 80% calcified. But we didn't know why. We thought it was just some kind of fluke. So because I'd had so many miscarriages and because of Carter's early delivery, I was high risk. And they had actually, they actually figured maybe I have a blood clotting disorder. So I was going to get shots in my stomach, blood thinners, when I was pregnant again. So we did that and I did the shots and I was under intense monitoring. Well, it was at about 30 weeks when I went in for an OB appointment and I had to deliver. This was August 31st. He wasn't due till November 4th, if that tells you anything. So he was born that day two pounds, 15 ounces, hmm. intubated for 12, only 12 hours. And then his NICU stay was six weeks, I believe. How did you feel that day? Oh my like, gosh. Did it was kind of like deja vu. Yes. Or? See, this is why we get so many of the details, like, like they all fuzzy together because it like so many similarities. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, in my head, it was like, I've done it before. I can do it again. You know, as moms, we do that. Like, we just buckle down and we do what we have to do for our kids. And so this NICU stay was a lot longer. You know, Carter's was two and a half, two and a half weeks. This was six weeks. And, you know, the pumping, the engorgement, all of that, it was, it was rough. And every time I would go into the hospital, I would feel this just, this, this nausea and sickness in my stomach until I got to him. You know what I mean? Like, and I, and I've, and I've analyzed I'm sure there were it. so many triggers. Oh of, gosh, yes. Like your past. Yes. <sighs> the smells of the hospital alone are a trigger to make my stomach just all get all mm-hmm. icky. You know what I mean? Were there any questions of like, could there be something genetic? Not then. No. Not like then. it was, you had a preemie once, you had a preemie yep. again, like your yep. body just couldn't carry him. Uh-huh. Like. Silas's placenta was a hundred percent calcified. Hmm. So had we not taken him in, his and his uh, kicks had started to slow down, and had we not done that emergency succession, he would have died. So he ended up meeting all of his milestones. You know, I mean, I fought like crazy to nurse. I did it. Um, he eventually latched, 
And then we got to the point where he was the exact same age that Carter was when Carter died. And we all just kind of went, you know, took a deep breath. And I remember my sister saying to me, Jen, the odds of something happening are like a million to one. Two months later, Silas came down with the same symptoms. One of you asked me, what was Carter's personality like? Silas was different. Silas was boisterous, into everything, pulling everything off the shelves, you know. He would put a hat on top of his head, and he'd walk around going, hat, hat, you know. So he was starting to walk and starting to talk. I got ahead of myself. Um, but yeah, he had met, you know, he was meeting all the regular milestones. You were, for lack of a better word, a typical mom yes. who was still grieving the loss of uh-huh. her other son. Yes. And watching this third child of yours grow and develop and hit milestones. I mean, you weren't a medical mom. Not at that point. Not at that point. And I tell you, going through having lost Carter, it gave new definition for cherishing every minute. I, and as moms, we do that. But it, it it had me cherish at a whole different level. I remember cherishing every kick. I remember cherishing even the nausea, you know, or then like, you know, doing, you know, I was nursing under the under the tree. I was nursing Silas, you know, um, during Christmas time. And I just remember just sitting there and just taking it all in and just so treasuring it. It just gave me such a different perspective. That is so beautiful. It brings me to tears, honestly. I think there's so much that just life, you know, we just get so crazy totally. in this life. It and really is. Yes. with this tragedy, also you gain this like, I can sit oh and remember these moments of nursing my child next Absolutely. to the Christmas tree. That's beautiful. Absolutely. Perspective is a beautiful thing. And and sometimes that hindsight, you know, that that 2020 hindsight, it comes at like a really steep price, you know? Mm-hmm. And things when you go through things like that, it gives you such insight or perspective or wisdom. You know, but mm-hmm. it comes at such a steep price. Absolutely. But okay, so I'm I'm jumping back up to when Silas went into CHKD, so Silas got lethargic at 17 months old and didn't have the blue dots and he didn't have the coffee ground blood. Okay. So what was your... Did you panic? You are two months past the age that your first son passed uh-huh. and then Silas gets symptoms. I was Did determined... Did you think, oh shit... Medical personnel did not act quickly enough. I felt like had I gotten him there sooner, he might have lived. And so I wasn't going to mess around. It was like, it was like, I was like full on. No, we're going to, we're going to get him there. And you never questioned your mom got like, no, what if this is just a head cold? Like, because I feel like I would have been like, what are the chances of this happening again? Like, agreed. maybe I should see what happens. Or was it like, no, I know this is something, this is the same. And I need to I get my kids. I don't have a good feeling of that. I don't have a good, you know, because because I felt like it was terrible things before and it was fine. And I didn't know it was something terrible and it was something terrible. So I don't have a good mm-hmm. baseline for that. Or is it just so much has gone on? It's like that mm-hmm. inside of me is off. I'm not quite sure. Okay. So with Silas... The next morning, I woke my husband up and I said, I, I think this is serious. So we called the ambulance. They got here. He didn't look sick enough 
for them to transport him all the way to CHKD. Because remember, we went to Mary Immaculate, then we yeah. went to CHKD. You're across I'm like, the water. I'm not from messing that. around. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm not messing around. We are going straight to CHKD. They could not get authorization to take him directly to CHKD because he did not look sick enough. Mm-hmm. So my husband said, fine, we'll take him ourselves. So he drove and I sat in the back with Silas. Once we got there, the same doctor that had pronounced my son dead admitted Silas. So we got there. He started seizing. Did he remember you, the doctor? Did he remember you? He did. He did. He started seizing. And again, my community flooded me. They got there. And um, that night, they pretty much gave me a 10% chance he would live. Oh, my God. And um, so we slept in the PICU rooms because I'm a person that I have to have sleep or I cannot function. So I slept-ish in that room, expecting them to knock on the door and tell me he was gone. And um, they had let everyone in the PICU that night to say goodbye, basically. Next morning, he was still here. And so they tightened up the regulations, now only two at a time. So, um, again, I could take any part of this story and go delve deep into it, but let's just go ahead two weeks. They tried all these different therapies. His organs were shutting down, heart, lung, spleen, kidneys, brain. And they still don't know what or why. They don't. And so they were trying all these different protocols. About two weeks into it, they finally figure out it. there's something called HLH. It's called hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis. And they suspect this. And they, the, the top HLH doctors are in Cincinnati. So they start talking to the doctors in Cincinnati. Are they putting pieces together between Carter and Silas at this They're point? Starting like they They're said, starting to. They have said. They're starting to. Mm-hmm. The doctor remembered you. Yep. They, you know, and are they saying, are you saying something similar happened to my other son who passed away at this age? Yes. And it, and when they landed on this HLH possibility, it's okay. a genetic thing or it, okay. it doesn't have to be, but it can be. Okay. And so they, I don't know why I was never told this, but apparently they either looked at the, the miscarriage because I had two I had three miscarriages where I had to have a DNC or a DNA. During this two-week period of time, they, I think that they're looking at the, the records from all of that because they find out that I had two boys and a girl that I had lost before. And so the, in HLH, which it can be brought on by some, like a sickness or it can be genetic, it's a, a blood disease, a rare uh, blood disease where in you and I's blood, there's little macrophages. They're like little Pac-Mans. And they go around and they eat all the bad bacteria. In HLH, it's an autoimmune disease. So it produces way too many of those little Pac-Mans that go around on a killing spree. And they eat everything. They were attacking his heart, attacking his lungs, attacking his kidneys, attacking his spleen, and attacking his brain. So the heart, the lungs, the kidneys, the spleen, all of that, they had machines. They had therapies. They had dialysis. They had the ECMO machine. They had intubation. They had all of that. But there's nothing for the brain. The brain can heal. And we hung on to that for a long, long time. And did 
these little Pac-Mans, did they just, this was a genetic thing. Mm -hmm. And did a virus trigger the Pac-Man to go and attack his body? Or was it just? That's what we suspect. Yes. Um, Because they did testing and there's certain genes that HLH is on. He tested negative for all of them. So is it a gene that's not known at this point? Um, Possible. You know, there's so many unknowns. And at that point in 2011, there there were very few cases of HLH. But now I'm on an HLH Facebook. It's rampant, hmm. tons. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna get ahead real quick. Is there a chance your daughter has yes. this, or has she been tested, yes. or do you then go home after losing one son and having another son in the ICU right now? Do you go home and say, could this happen to her? Yes, absolutely. What we think, the theory is that it's excellent. So she could be a carrier. The hope in our minds is that by the time she has children, that the therapies and the protocols being able to catch HLH before it does all of this damage will be much more advanced. So is that in the back of our minds? Absolutely. Do I think that she's going to, and, and I'm not a geneticist, like I'm not a genetic expert, but we know, all become them with my, I know, <laughs> but it was with my two boys at the same age. But, mm-hmm. but the thing is, is in my husband and I's line, nowhere do we have anything like this. Yeah. So I don't know if it's the perfect storm. I'm like, again, I'm not a geneticist. I don't know. Um, but that is definitely in our background. And maybe they don't even know. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Because it's so rare. It's so so how long was Silas in the ICU? Oh my gosh. That was Or brutal. in the hospital. Yeah. He was in the PICU for two months and then a regular floor for two months. And oh my gosh. was there a point in this PICU hospital stay that you felt like, okay, we're not going to lose him or, okay, we're going to leave here and I'm going to be a medical mom or <sighs> how did, what, what was going through your mind? You know, being a person of faith, there's always faith, right? There's always hope, right? And then there's what is. And just like eating the elephant when Carter died, I can't grasp this is happening again. Do you know what I mean? Like, And once they figured out the HLH part, then they had an MRI. And so, you know, at the beginning, they told me a 10% chance he'd live. He lives, right? Then they f- think they, f- they figure it out. So they do chemotherapy and steroids. Oh, funny. Then there's a very big concern for the brain. So they do an MRI. Worst news ever. I'm going to interrupt again. I uh-huh. want to step back and say, this was a 17-month-old boy who was putting hats on his head yes. a week prior to this happening. Like, yes. In my mind, like I was born, a, I wasn't born a medical mom. I was a medical mom the minute my kids were born. Right. I understand. You had a 17 month old boy who was playing Normal. and walking oh, and typical yes. and getting into trouble and mis- yes. mischievous. And, and now you, you're not that. Mm-mm. Yeah. I, but I didn't, I couldn't, again, I couldn't grasp that. Do you know what I'm saying? Because the day they gave me the MRI, it was the worst news ever. His brain was Swiss cheese. It was almost with certainty he will never recover and he will be a vegetable. I can't digest that. 
And, you know, people like that, you know, that have a death or something like this, you know, people, people might say, oh, well, they're not accepting it. Well, of course not. You can't accept all of that. Assume all of that, like right away. You know, there's always hope, right? Then my whole community, like, was flooding me with hope stories and, and, and resources and all kinds of like, so we worked like crazy for him, worked like crazy. And so he was in the hospital for four months total. He came home on a trach and a G-tube. I learned how to do all that. I transformed the back room of my home into basically a hospital room. He went in the hospital in February, came home in June. June to August was rough because he had been, you know, on all these drugs to be in a medically induced coma and, and everything. And his brain had just been scrambled and it was trying to reconnect. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was to watch him suffer and be able to not be able to do anything. It was brutal. And it wasn't like he didn't understand because his brain was damaged. Was it like your 17-month-old child six months prior? We, we never knew. We never knew how much he understands. Do you know what I'm saying? We don't know mm-hmm. how much he understands. Okay. But what we saw the, the, the summer he came home, we would see him track. We uh-huh. would see him trying to lift his hands. But he was basically reduced to basically a newborn. This may be an unanswerable question, Uh but when he came home having this child that was able to do all these things prior and like a light switch was not, were you present with him knowing that this is your child or did you ever miss him as a fully capable? Yes, I missed him. I left his nursery just the way it was. (laughs) There was one time... (laughs) When I could, you know, he's a, you know, a toddler at this point, so I could still pick him up. But I, I picked him up and I went and I put him in his crib. And I just wanted that little moment to remember what it was like. Absolutely. But there was, it as a medical mom, it's brutal. And like, you can't catch your breath half the time. Mm-hmm. So it was few and far between where I'd have those moments where I would miss him. You can't allow yourself to do that because you, no, have you to can't keep going. Exactly. Meanwhile, I don't want to throw this back in your face, but meanwhile you're grieving the loss of your other son. Yeah. Like let's not yeah. forget about Carter. Yeah. You have so much going on. And I Absolutely. I mean this in a very kind way, but as you're telling your story, you are zooming through it in a way that I do when I tell people yes. my story because <laughs> there's so much to say and there's so much there to is. but at the same time we have to like step back and go okay well how mm-hmm. did I feel we just have to keep going uh-huh. like as moms and we can't let ourselves step back and feel but feel. that moment when exactly. you put him in his crib and yeah. you were like this still is my boy yes I have another question that might be unanswerable. You described after Carter passed away. I mean, you just were really emotional when you talked about the beauty of your tribe at home, all your friends, all your family. Can you describe when Silas came home? The This is going to be a hard question to ask. Were there things that you were like, okay, despite him losing all abilities, Uh what was beautiful about him? Oh, 
gosh. So, yes, I'm getting to that part. So that first two months home, you know, they told me it'd be a vegetable. And then the, and they also put him on hospice. And he only had a year to live, basically. I will never forget, it was in August of 2011, that my baby, who had just spent six months suffering, he smiled at me for the very first time in six months. And having been promised a vegetable and gotten a smile, that was huge. That was huge. Those smiles, his joy, and you know, he was still recovering from that, and, and it took him a while. Um, and he's, you know, he's still very medically fragile, so he still has days and moments and times where he's just not feeling good or he's just very, very chill. But when he has that joy, that smile, it absolutely lights up a room. There's nothing like it. I can't describe to you how much joy I get from him when I have lost 99% of him. And when I get those smiles, it's like it lights up my entire world. Isn't it amazing how, I don't know if you all feel this. I know you do, Jen, because you're saying it, but you try and describe the beauty that comes with these kids. And there are zero words. Like sometimes people feel bad for you or feel bad for your child. And I often am like, I would never change her. And I know as an earthly mom, I would want all these things for her, right? I want her to walk. I want her to talk. I want her to have these abilities. But yet you see this indescribable joy and beauty that can only be God-given. I mean, it truly can only come from something much bigger than ourselves. And it I I often am so sad for the people that don't spend enough time with these kids to see that. I mean, it's just watching you describe just a simple smile. I mean, I wish you all could see her face and just the exuberance that's coming out of her because it's something spectacular that although this journey's hard, we get that. We're so fortunate to get that as mothers and parents. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's nothing like it. So you bring Silas home, you bring him home to having, how old was Haley at this point? Let's see, Haley was seven. And your two older kids were living in the home with you? My older daughter had just graduated from high school the year before, and so she ended up moving out with a friend. Okay. And so my older son was a junior in high school. Okay. And Carter would have been? Carter would have been... Five. Okay. Okay. Carter would have been five. How are you managing a household and bringing in a very medically complex human? How did you manage high school kids and a seven-year-old and grieving Carter and taking care of Silas to the way that he needed to be taken care of. Because let's remind people that, I mean, he came home with a trach and a G-tube and six months prior, you didn't know what a trach and a G-tube were. Nope. Um, So I had home health and I also, my in-laws, I love my in-laws. They live in California. The day that Carter died, they flew out the very next day. The day that Silas went into the hospital, they flew in for that entire month. I mean, they, they went back and forth, but they came to help. I had, I, I don't think that I cooked a meal 
I don't think I cooked a meal for six months because I had that kind of community support. It was absolutely beautiful. And at that time, interestingly enough, Susan, you and I, Diane, where are you, where are you located? What state? Okay. So at that time in Hampton Roads, I didn't know any other moms that had kids like this at home. Mm-hmm. Now I do. Now I know plenty in the 757. But back then it was, you know, it was very, very rare. But anyway, so I had just massive community support. I mean, Chick-fil-A did fundraisers <laughs> for Silas Cameron. We yeah. love Chick-fil-A. <laughs> yes, we do. And um, just, just beautiful, just beautiful support. And um, so Silas came home with two weeks of full-time care. And then it transitioned to, I got 16 hours a day. And so the way that we structured it, it was, I mean, I'm a person that has to sleep. It's just, it's who I am. I can't change it. I'm my best person if I sleep and I can, I can tackle the world if I sleep. I did nine to five by myself. And then that's when we would do therapies in school and all that kind of stuff like that. And then I would have nurses come in at 5 p.m. And then, then I would make dinner. I would do homework. I would spend time with my husband. I would sleep. The nurses would change at 1 a.m. in the morning. And then I would relieve the next nurse or the second nurse at 9 a.m. the next morning. So that's kind of how we, we coped. My husband would go to work. I would take care of Silas. And Haley, depending on whether or not she was homeschooled or whether she was going to school, she would do her school thing. That was kind of how we survived. I have a question about Haley. Mm-hmm. She's seven. Mm-hmm. She watched her brother leave the yes. home as a very typical able-bodied child. And lost, has lost another brother. And now her brother comes home. I think she was too young to process a lot of that. I really do. I think that, and, and I think that for children going through something like this, I think that each stage, as they grow up, they process things differently. Like, I think she will even process it when she has her own children. She will process what happened in our family in a whole different way. Mm-hmm. She's a doll. She's an absolute dreamboat. Like I said, I don't think that she got the gravity of the situation. I think for her, it was a gradual kind of coming to understanding. And aren't kids beautiful? They're just so, they just take it in and yes. they're like, okay, this is it. And they, yes. they're joyful. So they find joy. They don't necessarily see all of the hardships and the pain and the, oh my gosh, but I used to be able to play with him and, you know, pester him. Right. And she's right. just like, okay, this is just is. And did you feel any, any, like you had to give her a certain amount of attention because you were Oh, I desperately Your nine to five became taking care uh-huh. of Silas. And you were a teacher before? I was a teacher before I had her. I taught fourth grade okay. for eight years. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, I desperately wanted to protect that time with her. Um, I desperately wanted to protect the time with my family. Um, for those those of us who are medical moms and we have we have home health inside the home, it's a real challenge. It's a real challenge to be able to maintain that family life when you're caring for children medically complex and you need help outside the home to do that. My husband and I took more trips when Silas was here in the home together, um, off away than we ever, ever did before or after all of that. We did get a chance to go and go to see California family. We would, we were able to 
you know, get home health to cover all 24, 24-7 for those two weeks. Yeah, I definitely wanted to protect that time with her for sure. Absolutely. In this time, did you have any fear of the Pac-Men coming back or was it under control? That's a good question. So Silas got discharged in June, but right before he got discharged, we were going to participate in an HLH study with my blood, my husband's blood, and Silas's blood. And so we stayed the night at the Ronald McDonald house so that we could get our blood taken first thing in the morning and Silas's blood. And then all three of our blood was going to be in 24 hours shipped to Sweden. Mm -hmm. And they were going to do a study. When they got Silas's blood, there was no HLH in the blood. Was he in remission or will the HLH come back? Is Mm -hmm. he cured? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And at this point, he's 11 and it hasn't come back. Did we ever worry that it would come back? Absolutely. And I trained all of my nurses at home to look for certain signs. It was always a concern. Absolutely. But again, like as a medical mom, you can't dwell on daily. You can't dwell on all those what ifs because you're so inundated with caring with all of the, and and again, he would struggle. And so keeping him comfortable. Now we got to a point after about a year where we got him to a place where he was, he was pretty comfortable. And I mean, he would still, you know, get a cold and he'd be miserable, but um, he wasn't daily suffering. And for that, I'm grateful. So we're going to leave it at that. We're not going to ask the what gives you hope question. Although, you know, to be fair, let's do it. Cue the music. Hey, Susan, after listening to part one of this episode, what gives you hope? That's a great question, Suze. Let me think about this one. Okay, okay, kidding aside. You know, I said it in the intro and I will say it again. Stories like this give me hope. Knowing that she has faced what she has faced and knowing how she was weak in moments and strong in moments and that she's still going, that gives me hope. We will see you guys next week and you will hear the conclusion of her story. And let me tell you, you don't want to miss the conversation. She digs into big family decisions that she and her husband had to make. And it is a conversation that a lot of people in the disabled community as parents don't ever want to talk about. It's something that we all say we'll never want to do. But we don't know what the future looks like. And these discussions are not easy. So I I give her so much credit for the strength she had in sharing those conversations with us on a podcast for the whole world to hear. If you're new around here, let me add, we do have what we call the When Autumn Comes Society. It is a Facebook group that is private and it is for moms, dads, caregivers, aunts, uncles, I do this every week and I make a random list of people. It is for everybody. It is for not just family. It's for anybody who loves this community. And we talk about random things. Like this week we talked about tattoos. And then we talk about serious things. Like what do you do to honor your child after they pass? So things like that. If you're interested in joining, look up When Autumn Comes Society on Facebook and join our join our group. We're really, we're really nice people. I promise. 
Next week's conversation is very important and it's something that can't be missed. So we will see you. You will hear us. We're not going to see you. It's a podcast. You'll hear us next week.